Welcome, listeners, to Season 4, Episode 2 of Drinking and Screaming, a queer and feminist podcast about horror movies and cocktails. I'm Char. And I'm Kelly. And this week, we have a special announcement! Wow! Episode 2, and we're already doing special announcement. Wow. Oh, boy! Jumping the shark early. <laughs> We'll be doing an extra special live episode of Drinking and Screaming streamed on twitch.tv slash drinking and screaming as part of Wava Rape Crisis Center's Streaming for Survivors initiative. We're raising money for survivors of sexualized violence, and we hope that you'll help us by following the donation link in the show notes. We also will be taking suggestions for what we should watch for that episode, so feel free to let us know what you want to see. So this will be like an extra episode out of what we normally put on our feed, and it'll be live, and it'll be awesome. You'll get to see our faces as we talk. And maybe see a buddy. Wow. Wow. <laughs> but for this week, we're watching A Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge from 1985. This was our patron voted on episode. Whoa. But first, we have an inspired cocktail creation that we made to match the mood and themes of the movie. So we made this drink to taste like Freddy's inside you. This episode will contain discussion on homophobia, bigotry, and sexual violence. If any of these things are something that you need to not hear about today, feel free to skip this episode. So I made the drink this episode. You did! No surprise to anyone. I even came up with that description of why we made the drink like this. <laughs> uh, so I call this drink gay subtext. Ooh. Ooh, really burying the lead on this episode. I also thought it was funny that you actually struggled to make this drink. It, it took a hot minute to make this drink because I had one ingredient... The like main ingredient of this thing, for some reason, I got in my mind that that was the ingredient that needed to be in this drink. And it turns out that it's really hard to fucking pair anything <laughs> with that. So rather than just give you a shot with that one ingredient, I made a shot of that ingredient and a few others. Which is interesting because it's one of my favorite ingredients. It's fine. If you want to know what it is, you got to become a patron because we can't give it away. Give it away, give it away, give it away now. But. I don't, I don't it's only five dollars. It it's only five dollars. We we changed it. Yeah. Um, Tell me more about this drink, though. What is your goal? So the idea was that I we didn't know what this fucking movie was about. No, but not everyone at all. told us that it was a gay icon movie, and it's got like a little a little hint of gay subtext in that the movie is extremely gay. Uh, so I wanted to make a drink that kind of exemplifies the like quote unquote gay context of this. So yep. it looks like a very butch drink, uh, but it's got that, that little, that little, that little flavor underneath it that makes it more interesting and less boring and uh, mainstream. Hint of some sweet and sour. Not the sauce that's uh, on pork frequently, but you know. Ew, that'd be gross. <laughs> All right, I'm going to drink it. All right. We, these are really strong, like big, big, strong, big, burly, strong, beefy uh, shot glasses. So Ooh. I would be careful. It was mostly for the picture to look cool. So uh, you would probably get it in a shorter glass, an otter glass, if you will. <laughs> I like it. Plus, I like the large size. This is like a shooter drink. And when I went to gay bars in Montreal, we would get drinks in this size. Not drinks, but, you know, like shots from the drag queens. Yeah. Um, I People would buy me like beers and, and Yeah, Kelly's really lucky and... when they go to gay bars, they get hella drinks, fam. Man, I've lost so much money on drinks since the pandemic started. Because <laughs> <laughs> I buy them for you. <laughs> what do you think about it? I like this drink. It tastes... 
very gay. <laughs> Thank you. I think I got the wrong one. Mine is kind of, it kind of tastes like a Jaeger bomb, which is the straightest shot of, we all know it's the straight, straightest <laughs> shot ever. Um, I think my proportions are a little bit off in mine. Oh, you want I, this one? No, because I drank a lot of these while we were testing them, yeah. so I know what it's supposed to taste like. Ah, um, well, this one tastes fine. I mean, it doesn't still, taste very strong. Your warning made me feel like, what? No, I said it was a big, beefy, strong oh, glass. The glass is big and strong. I get it. <laughs> but yeah, I could drink this at a party. I could drink this before watching this movie to make it a little bit better. Spoilers. Yeah. Whoa, bearing another lead. <laughs> Both ends of the lead are now in the dirt. I do still don't really know what that metaphor means. <laughs> what do you think about your drink? I mean, I don't really like Jaeger bombs, but again, I know what this drink is supposed to taste like, and it's not a Jaeger bomb. So maybe I'll make another one. We have all the ingredients in the in the recording studio right now. Ooh! So this week we watched A Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge from 1985. It premiered on November 1st of that year. It's directed by Jack Shoulder, written by David Chaskin. <laughs> <laughs> With characters by Wes Craven. Stars Robert Englund as maniacal, dreamwalking child murderer Freddy Krueger. Mark Patton as final guy Jesse. Kim Myers as friend and confidant Lisa Weber. This synopsis I stole from IMDb written by user Derek O'Kane. Thanks, Derek. Jesse Walsh and his family have moved into Nancy Thompson's old house on Elm Street. No sooner as they moved in than Jesse begins to have horrific nightmares, ones that feature a burned man in a dirty red and green sweater with knives on the fingers of his right hand. His neighbor and new sweetheart, Lisa, discovers the truth behind Fred Krueger and his horrible murder spree. Freddy vows to take over Jesse's body to continue his vile crimes against the Elm Street residents. Soon, people close to Jesse start dying violently. Will Lisa's love for Jesse be enough to help him overpower the demonic presence inside him? And really that last line of this IMDb synopsis is pretty telling for the um, subtext, if you will, of this film. But to wrap things up, in a bloody nightmare, Jesse finds himself observing the brutal slaying of his gym teacher, Coach Schneider. The next day, he learns that the murder was, in fact, real, and he's convinced that it wasn't Freddy Krueger, but himself who was the murderer. A few days later, at Lisa's party, they start to have sex. Whoa. But abruptly, Freddy seizes hold of Jesse with this long demon tongue coming out, and it's very gross. Fearing for her, Jesse tears himself away and runs outside, leaving Lisa in tears. Jesse runs to Grady's house and begs him to stay awake and watch him. And of course, Freddy comes. The transformation is horrible <laughs> and fascinating to watch as Freddy bursts through Jesse's body and kills Grady. Back at the party, Freddy attacks Lisa and begins chasing her throughout her home and then rampages in the backyard. Freddy boils the pool water and spreads flames everywhere, kills a few party guests before Lisa convinces him to leave because she knows it's really Jesse. She runs to the old power plant where Kruger used to work and there's a final showdown with Freddy who ends up getting burnt alive with Jesse shedding his charred corpse like a butterfly in a cocoon. The film ends with Jesse and Lisa on the school bus the next day with Freddy revealed as the driver speeding off the road. Bum, bum, bum. He's still there. Whoa. Do you ah! want to sip that? Do you want to slip that trailer audio into my dreams? Yeah. <laughs> Someone is coming back to Elm Street. He is not friendly. 
He is not patient. And he is not a welcome visitor. Freddy Krueger is back on Elm Street. Get out of here, Lisa! Fight him! Watch out for him. He'll be in your neighborhood soon. A Nightmare on Elm Street, Part 2. You are all my children now. Freddy's Revenge. <laughs> commercial was misleading you think it was misleading yeah because at the end they said freddie will come to your neighborhood soon but specifically he's on elm street so unless my neighborhood's on elm street i don't think he'll be coming to my neighborhood anytime soon kelly that was supposed to be theater near you joke silly kelly that was that was a dumb commercial (laughs) (laughs) but it did like it gave exactly the right amount of information yeah freddie's trying to take over someone he's coming back that's really all you need yeah exactly and we saw the two leads that's all we needed one of them looks like meryl streep also kind of looks like uh ashley johnson from several things (laughs) (laughs) i was gonna say critical role but i imagine most people know her from other things yeah we have a nerdy fan base here i'm pretty sure we have a few tabletop players in our midst that's true but before we get going i also wanted to say that we watched uh after seeing this film we also watched the documentary on shutter called scream queen my nightmare on elm street from 2019 Mm. and that is a mark Patton documentary who's the lead character in this film and it describes how he's his life was kind of ruined by this film yeah uh, by a lot of things happened but this film kind of like sparked the uh end of his career yeah um but uh i would highly recommend going and watching that even just pausing the podcast right now going to watch it and then listening to this because a lot of what we're going to talk about revolves around the doc probably more than the movie so (laughs) just a quick heads up yeah uh but my first point is definitely about the film itself and it's about our show because this is a movie that's been recommended to us suggested to us a bunch of times because of how deeply rooted it is in queer culture and that's the reason that i included it in our patreon voting poll i basically knew that it would win regardless of (laughs) what i put it up against um so i felt a bit bad for the other movies but it was a nice film to like check off our list i think yeah especially with the context of the scream queen documentary But even if we hadn't known about that doc before watching this, you can't deny what is in this film. Because the main plot is that there's a monster inside of him and there's problem. His problems can't be understood by anybody. And he just wants everybody to leave him alone because he's scared of who he really is transforming into. Mm -hmm. So that's so like the otherness in this film is huge. And then, like, regardless of the plot, so much of the things that we see visually on screen are so deeply rooted in queer culture. There's the BDSM scene in the bar that's like totally biker, but totally not. I mean, they specifically, yeah, they say that it was a BDSM club uh, earlier on in the movie. Then there's the shower scene where the coach gets whipped with towels and tied up with ropes. Mm -hmm. Then there's the huge snake that wraps around this final boy when he's dreaming. (laughs) And then 
it just it just goes on and on and on. But mostly, I think it's really interesting how much he's so scared of the monster inside of him and how no one else can help him. Um, and it's kind of bullshit that for a long time, the writer, David Chaskin, denied writing any queer culture and subtext in this script. And then it, it's revealed in the documentary that Mark Patton says, but then it became kind of cool. Yeah. And then you were like, yeah, I put that subtext in all along on purpose. That was my whole intention was for it to be a gay movie and y'all loved it. So I did a good job. Yeah. And there's like quotes of him from previous publications and interviews of what he was saying before he changed his tune. So, you know, it's not just Mark Patton making this shit up. Mm -hmm. So I thought that was very interesting. Also, every time I hear Mark Patton, I think Mike Patton from Faith No More uh, and my brain just really can't uh, comprehend the the two of them. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The next thing I want to talk about is also heavily rooted in the film, which is my favorite part. (gasps) Can you guess what it is? Uh, It's the musical number. Yeah. (laughs) No, just kidding. There's no musical number. Technically, there's music well, and choreography. There, it is a dance scene. I'll give you that. Um, it is the dance scene, incredibly iconic in the bedroom that Jesse, when he's like, because they just moved into Nancy's house, right? So he's got all these boxes and his dad's like, you can't go out until you unpack, young man. He's like, okay, dad. Stomp, 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 stomp. <laughs> and then he turns on a, a tape and dances the night away. Hell yeah. And it's really, really funny. And he kind of masturbates with this like popper toy thingy (laughs) and his like butt scoots up against the uh, dresser. And he's doing costume changes the whole time. And he like puts on glasses and it's like risky business. And he turns to the camera. and He's like, yeah, I'm so cool. (laughs) Um, And I really enjoyed that scene. It was really, really fun. And I, to be honest, I didn't really enjoy the movie as a whole that much, but this scene, as well as other Mark Patton, really, my point is, carried the film. Yeah. I really enjoyed his sensitivity and his uh, truth. I think he was really vulnerable in the part, uh, which was nice to see. Uh, what's it called? Substitution, yep. uh, as you call it. You can mm. really tell, like, a lot of the stuff on, on scene was believable because of, like, him substituting his own personal experiences into it. Yeah. Um, which you can really feel if you have any experience with that whatsoever for sure yeah and then my last point again i'm actually pretty focused on the film i didn't talk about the doc too much but i know that you will oh yeah i mostly talk about the the doc (laughs) but i wanted to shout out the special effects that were used there was a lot of different moments in this film uh some of them are really awful like the (laughs) birds exploding oh yeah That was so weird. Like the birds are getting hot and like Freddy takes over them. So they start attacking people and then they just like poof. And they were like little budgies, like green budgies. I don't know. It looked really bad and stupid. I'm an animal lover. And the whole time I just was like, this is dumb. (laughs) This isn't even realistic enough to be scary. Yeah, I wasn't sad at all. Um and then, but the good stuff was the transformation scene was really, really cool. We see like slashes appear in his arm, in Jesse's arm, and like the sweater is underneath. And the blades coming out of his fingertips. Yep. And then like when he's like screaming, there's this shot of uh, inside his throat. It's like bright lights inside. And we see like Freddy's eyeball looking back and forth. He's got eyes on the inside. In the deep throat. <laughs> 
something that really creeped me out was Freddy's uh, demonic tongue that appears out of Jesse when he's like canoodling in the cabana with Lisa. Yeah, but he really likes to do that. Yeah, the, the phone, the phone scene on the on the first one to Nancy. Yeah, it really made me uncomfortable. Um, and it's like so long. And she has her eyes closed and she doesn't know what's happening. And it's like, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> but then that uh, Jesse's like, oh, my God, and runs away. <laughs> so, so that was good. This is a weird little side thing real quick. I have a friend who specifically has that exact story of him basically realizing that he was gay because he was uh, making out and was about to have sex with a girl in a pool house. Uh, and oh. then he like wasn't into it. And he was like, wait, maybe I might be gay. Uh, so like I was sitting there, I'm like, what the hell? What did they copy my friend who was not born yet? <laughs> story. <laughs> I didn't even think about that because yeah, he gets like totally grossed out and just like dips. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Oh, like uh, all of the stuff of him, like being, uh, scared of Freddie and, and stuff definitely was reminiscent of like all the stories I've heard from like my gay friends or like stuff that I've gone through. And yeah. It's, yeah. Yeah, that one. It's just visually Fred, Fred Cougar, Frederick Cougar, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Cool movie plot device. <laughs> and then my last point isn't really a point. It's just a throwaway funny thing that this movie is buddy approved. <laughs> and that's because there's an amazing cat cameo, special effects, you know, uh, puppet. It's not really a, that a, wasn't a real puppet. cat. <laughs> But it hunts a rat and uh, you get some great scene uh, or sounds and uh, Buddy watch the TV for that moment. So this is now Buddy's favorite horror film until we say otherwise. Some people might say that that cat was unrealistic because it was screaming and had like massive fangs and stuff. But uh <laughs> We uh, we're living in the attic above my mom's place right now because of the covid. Mm -hmm. And occasionally when my mom comes up to like watch a movie with us like this one, uh, her cats will like come up to the door and start meowing for her. Uh, so what I'll do sometimes is sometimes I'll go to the door and just kind of like shoo them away. But once in a while, I'll bring Buddy because Buddy hates every cat created by God. Yeah, when we adopted him, they were like, he is a one cat man. And we were like, okay. So occasionally I'll just like hold him up like Simba and he'll start screaming and like hissing and stuff at the cats and the that'll scare time, them off. The last time that you did it, it was like oh, yeah. demon sounds. That's what I'm referencing is that this is a realistic depiction of Buddy <laughs> because this, the noises that came out of our cat I've never heard before in my life. Uh, he like... <laughs> occasionally he'll like hiss and almost seem sound like he's spitting but this was like something deep within him coming out that i've never heard before yeah uh so again very realistic depiction of of kitties yeah and that's uh that's all my points it's time for the real deal i'm not okay with this i think part part of the aesthetic of this segment is going to Consistently be that I'm not okay with the name. That's fine. Yeah, that'll be, we'll feed that into the <laughs> the energy of the title sequence. You have to rebel against your mother. Exactly. I have to be a re rebellious youth. Uh, so this segment of our podcast, uh, when we, when we uh, are graced with my mom's appearance while watching this movie, mm -hmm. uh, she will then write a review herself. About, because she thinks we lie. Yeah, she says that we lie. That's why it's called The Real Deal. But we don't lie. She's wrong. She's wrong. <laughs> Movies aren't scary. Uh, go go, women is our, go women. our slogan. <laughs> Movies aren't scary. Anyways, 
Okay, here it goes. The first real deal for season four and my take on Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge. When Kelly was younger, I videotaped them getting an ingrown toenail removed. I then edited it down and put it on YouTube under Kelly's Big Toe. I really don't know if that still exists. Oh, God. Uh, I didn't know that got filmed. Yep. There was better acting, elements of surprise, and fear-invoking scenes in that than in any part of Elm Street 2. And... (laughs) The frightening menace that was Kelly's ingrown toenail will forever be more memorable than the villain of this very path- pathetic attempt of a sequel. Not not wrong. <laughs> if Shar and Kelly told you that this movie is still worth watching, don't listen to them. It was so bad. The only reason I stayed and watched the whole thing was because Buddy was sleeping on my lap. And if I would have moved, he would have hissed at me. And that would have been scarier than this movie. I give this movie a definite two thumbs down. Go watch Kelly's Big Toe. <laughs> I need to just give me a sec. I need to see if that's... We're Googling it. We're YouTubing it. I mean, it's also a botched toe job. I mean, a little bit. uh, Yep, still up there. How many views does it have? 17,000 views. That's more than anything I've ever made. Oh, God. Anyways, a little bit too much. (laughs) TMI is that it was also a botched toe job. So I still have to deal with that for the rest of my life. Anyways, that was a good review. That was a good review. Um, good job, Colleen. Don't worry, Mom. We told people not to watch it either. Yeah. Well, I said I would watch it if it was more fun. <laughs> and we were in a theater, not during a Panorama. We're going to take a moment to talk about our socials and sponsors. This season of Drinking and Screaming is sponsored by American Nightmare Candle Company. Bring the horror into your home with a handmade soy wax candle from American Nightmare Candle Company. The scents are inspired by locations iconic to the horror genre, places like the Overlook Hotel, Sleepy Hollow, and elm street each fragrance combination is carefully curated to transport you into the story and the catalog is ever evolving available for purchase at etsy.com slash nightmare candle co we have some candles coming our way so we will be able to give you our honest reviews but they have yet to arrive but the places that they're based on alone is enough for a purchase i say i mean i really want to get a place and then watch the movie whilst smelling what it smells like a 4d experience yes this episode of drinking and screaming is sponsored by salt rec on etsy have you ever struggled finding that perfect decor for your walls we get it empty walls are no fun salt rec specializes in canadian map art their etsy shop now has over 700 beautiful map prints representing every corner of canada Go check out their Etsy shop and read any of their hundreds of raving reviews. Plus, you'll feel good to know that all the prints are 100% made in Nova Scotia. Fill your empty walls with beautiful maps of home. Canada! (laughs) Etsy.com slash shop slash saltrek. That's saltrek, S-A-L-T-W-R-E-C-K. We're excited to announce that Mad Labs is continuing to be our liquor sponsor this season. Scott has some amazing new things coming up, and we're so excited to try them. Until then, you can't go wrong with their amazing gin, vodka, and bitters. We use them literally all the time. (laughs) There's not an ad anymore. This is Kelly talking to you that we drink it all the time. You can get them at madlabdistilling.com. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at drink underscore scream on Facebook at drink and scream. And you can email us at drinking and screaming at gmail.com. If you want to be included in the show, you can email us your synopsis of the movie we're going to watch next. 
For more information and to buy some merch, go to drinkingandscreaming.com. One, two, the rest of the episode's coming for you. <laughs> Three, four, don't better. watch this movie anymore. Oh, I was going to say, better drink some more. Damn it, no, that's good. <laughs> have some points no none None? i've got nothing to think about this movie what uh (laughs) my first point uh first of all like i said i'll probably mostly talk about the document rather than the movie but just to get it out of the way the movie was kind of lackluster it was like really boring and weirdly paced i mentioned like we were at half hour in and no one died and it's supposed to be like a summer slasher flick kind of thing and it also felt like so dragged out kind of yeah and like so many of the dream sequences just retold the same thing like he was never learning anything new it was just kind of boring yeah uh the overall concept of freddie trying to get into the real world through like a teenager that moved into nancy's place is pretty cool but like i don't know there's no really good shots to phone home about and other than like the emotional drama of Jesse, it wasn't like scary at all. Yeah. Uh, like the transformation scene was probably the scariest thing in the movie, but everything else was more like emotional. Yeah. When they had that first showdown in his hallway and he's tells him like, I got the brains, you've got the body yeah. or whatever. And he like rips off his head or skin, like skin on his head. So you see his brain. That was kind of cool. That was pretty cool. And that moment was very uh, hot, yeah, erotic. Which, from the documentary, we learned that like Robert England and uh, Mark Patton during that scene were talking about like we should play it up and like can I put the blade in your mouth and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then the props department sprinted in and screamed not to put it anywhere near his mouth because it'll It'll look look like he's flating him. Yeah. Which, God forbid, it's more gay subtext. Just make it text. Just write the text. It already's there. But yeah, my first point is that it's it's just not a good movie. Like, yeah, I don't think I would really watch this again. No. I would skip it. It's incredibly forgettable. Yeah. Um, other than the fact that it became such an iconic movie for the queer culture. And that dance scene. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but I mean, like, we don't even have intentions of watching the third ones because we hear that it gets, like, extremely uncomfortable. Yeah. Uh, so, like, I don't know, Friday or Nightmare on Elm Street doesn't really seem like a bingeable movie for us, I guess. Like a bingeable movie series. Yeah. I think we'll watch maybe the third one, maybe, and then that's it. Yeah. We'll see. We'll see how but bad I would it just, gets. I'd rather just watch Friday the 13th. Yeah, I would rather, rather watch good movies. <laughs> All right, so my second point is about the documentary, yep. um, which is extremely counter to the first one, which is that I appreciate this movie more. Um, I still don't like it or particularly would, wouldn't really recommend it to anyone unless it's for the history um, but yeah, I don't really think it's a good movie, but seeing how like the public responded at the time to Jesse really makes me want to like this movie out of spite. <laughs> uh, fuck you guys. Fuck all of you. Because during the uh, documentary, it showed like a bunch of people's reviews, like calling Jesse the F word and like saying mm-hmm. uh, that he's like a girl and like the movie was ruined and et cetera and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Um, and then as we learned from the doc, this was like about the time that the AIDS epidemic started. So he basically had to like go back into the closet, deal with his, uh, disease and then never returned to acting. 
And his agents even were like, we're going to have to make you a character actor because you can't play straight and this is tanking yeah. your c- reputation. And-, and his boyfriend at the time had to like pose with a bunch of photos of women to make him look straight. And he got kicked out of his house and stuff. And yeah, it's extremely sad. But it's like mm-hmm. it's such a huge thing in queer culture to like protect what we claim uh to like anger bigots basically yeah and like especially like taking things that ignorant people think is like this is the straightest thing ever and then like we claim it for ourselves predator like, yeah <laughs> predator is the gayest movie ever i don't know why people talk about nightmare on elm street too all the time um but i agree with your point about how watching the documentary really gave us like a new light to see the film in yeah um i i totally feel the same way and for that reason alone, I would watch this movie again. Oh, I still wouldn't watch it again. I would. But much in, like I said, I wouldn't advise people to really watch this movie unless it was for the culture. Like yeah. during the doc, we saw um, Rocky Horror Picture Show style screening where they did like cutaways and uh, little gags and stuff like that. Yeah, they had a drag queen performing a show. Yeah. And like that, I would see again. I would see it through that lens Mm -hmm. where it's like a group of people showing up and having fun with the movie, but I would not sit down at home and watch this movie again, much in the same way that I would not watch Rocky horror picture show at home. Yeah. It was, I don't really like that movie either. (laughs) The songs are good. (laughs) Yeah. But it's also extremely problematic. I have so many. That's another episode. Yeah. We'll we'll do that. that. (laughs) But uh, regardless, even if it is a bad movie, it pisses people off and therefore we should elevate this movie. And that's just queer culture. I think (laughs) (laughs) my third point is fuck that writer. Fuck him. Um, I know that the documentary, if anyone watched it, um, Mark accepts the writer's apology um, they kind of have a discussion about what happened. Basically, Mark was saying that uh, the writer blamed Mark for ruining the movie and acting too gay. Yeah. Uh, whereas Mark was never told that he was doing anything wrong. Like the the producer wasn't given any direction. Yeah. Like he would do a scene and then everyone would clap and say that was dope. So it's their fault. Uh, so in the documentary, they brought them together. They had a conversation and that apology was garbage. That was the worst fucking apology ever. Like mm-hmm. the writer is constantly like deflecting Mark's points. Uh, Mark will like bring up something that he said in an interview and the writer will be like, well, that was a joke and it was taken out of context or whatever. Yeah. Uh, and it's that big like, well, you're reading too much into what I said, even though you fucking said it. So go to hell. Um, and then he ends with the classic like, well, if I hurt you, I'm sorry. Apology, which is yeah. like not an apology. I'm sorry I made you feel that way. Yeah. I'm sorry that you had an issue with the things that I did, not yeah, taking any sort it. of ownership. So yeah, my biggest point is that, uh, going meta with this, that the writer was garbage and then just really screwed everything up. <laughs> um, in the doc though, Mark was like the bigger person and he either accepted the apology or just took what he could get. Yeah. But I mean, that's always the position that us as queer people get forced into. Yeah, exactly. Which is kind of fucking annoying. And I think anybody (laughs) watching that documentary with experience, uh, understands what Mark did in that situation. Yeah. Uh, which is take what he can get and be the bigger person. And then he mentions how like for his whole life, he was blaming the writer for things that the writer had no control over, like the AIDS epidemic happening and yeah, um, all that stuff. So that I understand, but I'm going to be angry for Mark 
publicly. You've come to peace with it, but we haven't. Yes. <laughs> we will defend you. But like at the end of the movie, it's very uh, redeeming because Mark has become like an advocate uh, for like living with AIDS and the queer culture and does like cons and stuff and seems like really like he's what was it he said about like signings like this is the only chance that somebody has to meet you and it's you're their hero yeah and you have like a second to either ruin their opinion or like ruin their dream or elevate it yeah and- that's something that resonated a lot with me I kind of forgot about it so I'm glad that you brought it up because uh, side side story <laughs> when we went to Fan Expo last year which was basically a year ago from the day we were recording this right I have before no concept of time <laughs> right before the panini started uh, we were at Fan Expo we did a live show there which was awesome as drinking and streaming our first live show but then while we were there uh, Kevin and Oscar from the office were there and we love the office we're huge office nerds so I for the first time ever splurged and I bought the like hundred (laughs) dollar fucking photo that you get Uh, so we met them got our picture taken of course it's like a cattle call you don't even get a chance to really connect there but we also waited in line to just have a chance to speak with them afterwards at their booths and Kevin was amazing Super fun, yes. uh, kind, <laughs> lovable, and like really had a genuine conversation with us, which I thought was so nice, and I, I was so grateful for that. And then Oscar kind of ruined it. Yeah, Oscar was kind of a dick. He was like, I don't understand why everybody loves this show. It's just a show. Yeah, people and, need to move on with their lives. And I was like, wow, you're making so much money from us coming here. <laughs> <laughs> you could at least fake it. And when we did the uh, picture with them, we wanted to do the Vogue pose because that was an iconic moment in the office. And they were like, "What? why do you want to do that? Yeah. So, But the picture fun. looks awesome. <laughs> Uh, but then again, if Oscar wants to come on, uh, we'll take it back. <laughs> Meh, whatever. Um, but yeah, then uh, Mark Patton basically describes how like he will burn all of his bell slots. He'll use up all of his spoons during these cons because it means so much to the people coming to see him. It's so draining, but it's so worth it for the fans. Yeah, exactly. And I think the end of the movie is very much or the end of the documentary uh, is very much like a um, inspirational thing for Mark. Like his his life seems very good now. Like he went through a lot of shit and trauma, but it seems yeah. like he's recovered fairly well. Yeah. Uh, much in the way that he does at the end of Nightmare on Elm Street 2, F- Frederick's Revenge. Um, also. Uh, but then it's bad at the end of that. <laughs> I mean, life <laughs> life sucks in general. So it's a roller coaster. You, you think you got your hands on the wheels, but then you're not driving on the road anymore. That's life. That's life. That's what all the people say. Had like three of these shots now already. Anyway, feeling it. <laughs> it's time for whispers from beyond. This is the part of our show where we uh, read off reviews that we get. We read off messages we receive on Twitter. Uh, anything that helps uh, y- what you guys do help us grow the show. And we want to say thank you. And this review is from Lord Zombie XIII or 13 on Twitter. 
They say, this podcast is great. It is like listening to your best friends talking about a movie they just watched and they are not afraid to let you know if they loved or hated it. The segments are all fun, even better when they add their own special effects to them. Their viewpoints really make you look at a movie in a different light. I mean, I will never look at Beetlejuice the same way again. Always a fun listen, Antonio. Yeah. Thanks, Antonio. Love ruining stuff for people. That's actually not the first time that we've heard specifically the Beetlejuice episode we brought up. I was like, love your show, but wow. Wow, Beetlejuice. Oops. (laughs) Oops, guys. Um, I mean, that's that's fine. If you I mean, if I learned anything from game design, uh, it's how to analyze things so much that it's ruined for you and you can never fully enjoy that medium ever again. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Woo-hoo. That's life. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, I think I'm in a dream. There's a book on that table that wasn't there before. Whoa. Let's check it out. It's time to open the Reconomicon. Oh, right. <laughs> How's my uh, Robert Englund laughing? That was a that was a terrible uh, lead into that segment. The I'm, best one yet. I'm probably gonna edit it out, but that was a full two minutes of me trying to think of something. Probably anyway. you're definitely editing that out. <laughs> Anyways, uh, my recommendation is The Lost Boys from 1987 uh, because it features another young actor whose career got ruined. Also, it has teens and vampires. That's The Lost Boys from 1987. I'm recommending the documentary we watched. (laughs) It's a Shudder original, and that's called Scream Queen, My Nightmare on Elm Street, and it's from 2019. Highly recommend. Uh, It's also spelled Scream, comma, queen. So it's like Scream, yeah, Scream Queen. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I thought that was, I didn't even know that until we started watching, and the poster in the background had a comma, and I was like, (laughs) oh! And now it's time for our final segment. Scaredy facts. For those of you just listening in for the first time, or for those of you who like the story like I do, this is where we invite you into our relationship to snuggle up under the covers after we watch- don't fall asleep. Of course, gotta stay awake. But after we watch a movie, we cuddle and we go on movie trivia sites like IMDb and other things to find some trivia, get ourselves unspooked from what we just watched. And uh, now I will share all of these scary effects with you. I appreciate it. Oh, with them. I get it. Yeah. And you too. <laughs> You're here. Okay. I'm here We're too. We're still in our relationship. It's still happening. Yeah. <laughs> Who are all these people here? Whoa! Our bed got so much larger. <laughs> So starting with the budget, uh, which was an estimated three million opening weekend, they almost made it back in the United States. They made two point nine million. But the gross USA amount, usually I put worldwide, but I couldn't find it here, is 30 million. So they 10 times do their money. It's not bad yet. Yeah, that's like one million per year. The film itself kind of flopped at theaters like it did well enough to save the studio from going bankrupt, of course, but it definitely was such a 90 degree 180 turn from what the original was. Well, it's because people don't like gay people. Whoa. And I don't I didn't say didn't. I said don't. (laughs) 
So my first scaredy fact is that New Line Cinema originally refused to give Robert Englund a pay raise. And so they cast a nobody as Freddie, as an extra. They barely paid them anything. But after two weeks of filming, uh, the studio head, Robert Shea, realized that this was a terrible lapse in judgment and met Englund's demands. It's weird. <laughs> Which, yeah, you can't have a Freddie movie without Robert Englund. I mean, you can. No. It happens eventually. <laughs> no. I'm pretty sure someone else plays Freddy in the future. No. Much in the way that there's like 10 different Jasons. I'm pretty sure he's always it. No, I thought uh, during the later ones, they recast him, didn't they? Did they? I think so. Man, I'm, uh, we'll never get there. It doesn't matter. Nobody fact check me. <laughs> <laughs> in the opening sequence, this is obvious for us because we've seen Robert Englund so much, but that is in fact him uh, without the heavy Freddy Krueger makeup and his signature clothing when uh, the bus pulls up to start the film. <laughs> Robert Englund has stated also that Freddy's Revenge is his least favorite Nightmare on Elm Street movie. Sam, and I've only seen two. <laughs> Dead by Daylight's better. I love Dead by Daylight. <laughs> Did you know? Dead by Daylight includes a, a Freddy Krueger killer. Is that a fact that you had or did you just mention that? I just said it right now. It's and all, he goes, oh, 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 oh. It also has Quentin. Yeah. And. That's Elm, why we have to watch the third one. And Elm Street. <laughs> <laughs> Springwood. Yeah. Springwood. That's it. Uh, studio head Robert Shea micromanaged every aspect of the production, regularly confusing crew members by stepping over the line and offering orders, which should have come from the director. This led to an understandably uneasy relationship between Shea and the director, Jack Shoulder. And on top of this, the production was remarkably rushed, slotted for a November 1st, 1985 release date when the first film had only been released on November 9th of the previous year. They made the whole film in a year. Wow. As a result, tensions were high, the hours were long, and the work was hard. There was no real time to stop and second-guess the direction of the franchise. And in another documentary, Never Sleep Again, Robert Englund recalls several moments during filming, particularly the pool sequence, where Freddy is appearing to teenagers outside of their dreams, where um, he was struggling to play the part because so much of it felt like it was going against the rules of Freddy Krueger in the first installment of the film. I mean, you can really notice that when he's just kind of like running around like a toddler. Yeah. <laughs> uh, also, fun fact, if you Google Jack Shoulder, the first image is Mark Patton. <laughs> uh, I also didn't really like Jack from the documentary either. Yeah. When Mark was like talking about his uh, beef with the writer. He was like, you got to get over just it. Just get over it. It's been 30 years. Doesn't even, matter. It ruined his fucking life. Even though the writer did nothing to make up for it, he should just get over it already. <sighs> Jeez. Yeah. The best revenge is just to live a good life. No, I the, hate that fucking advice. The best revenge is a quick stab between the rib cage. <laughs> When Lisa finds Nancy's diary while helping Jesse unpack, she reads the address as 1428 Elm Street. The address of the house used for all the exterior shots is, in fact, 1428 North Genesee Avenue in West Hollywood. Whoa. I can't remember if I said that fact in the first episode we did of the original film, but just in case, there it is again. It's probably one of those houses that gets like swamped. Oh, yeah. Oh, I think I mentioned that their like sign gets taken off all the time. Uh, yeah. 
The sequence where Freddy terrorizes the pool party was viewed by the cast crew and many fans as the most nonsensical scene in the movie. This is, again, like what Robert Englund was saying earlier. It was believed that it broke the rules set forth by Wes Craven in the first film because Freddy was attacking people while they were awake. So if people could do this movie again, that's what they would change. I feel like to to kind of see where they're coming from. The whole idea is that Freddy is trying to come into the real world and take over so Jesse this is the climax where he's accomplished that goal. Yeah. So like I was waiting for the moment where it's revealed that nobody saw him as Freddy and it was actually Jesse. Yeah. Yes. That I also wanted as that. Hell. I really wanted that too, but that didn't happen. No. As Jesse transforms into Freddy, though, we see a quick shot of Freddy's eye staring out of Jesse's open mouth. To accomplish the shot, effects artists made a dummy of Mark Patton's head with a hole for Freddy's eye to look through. They then affixed this prop to a flat surface and had someone put their head into the opening. But the only person whose head could actually fit was the girlfriend of the special effects designer. So this is the only time in the franchise that Freddy is portrayed by a woman. Not counting, of course, the times that it's actually him pretend to be pretending to be other people in the dream world. Oh, yeah. Like in the first movie. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. And yeah. also, I just want to shout out uh, Kevin Yeager. Yeager <laughs> or Yager. Y-A-G-H-E-R is the special effects designer. So good work. Nice. There are some pretty great things in here. Some of the things in here are great. Yeah. Are you ready? I said it was our last segment, but it wasn't. <laughs> facts. <laughs> Jesse's car is the same car used in the television series Freddy's Nightmares from 1988. It is used by Lar Park Lincoln in the Freddy's Nightmares It's a Miserable Life 1988 episode. <laughs> Jesse's car is a 1966 Dodge Dart GT convertible. Uh, we did not have our car expert. He now refuses to watch these movies and I'm going to claim it's because he's too scared of them. <laughs> Uh, so we have to find these car facts ourselves <laughs> through means. Through means. I was proud of myself for getting that one. Nice. And that's all I got. So it's time for final thoughts. Uh, my final thought is that I, again, I can only really recommend this movie for the cultural significance. Uh, if you uh, want to see where everyone's gotten their like praise of this movie and how it's been adopted by the queer culture. Uh, in the queer community, rather. Uh, check it out. Also, the dancing scene. Hell yeah. I was going to just say, I already said this earlier, but I'll re reiterate that it's a really great movie, I think, to watch on a big screen with actors playing the parts live on stage and kind of playing it up and making fun of it like Rocky Horror. And clearly, this paved the way for more gay horror as a whole in the genre. So thanks. Well, that's been A Nightmare on Elm Street to Freddy's Revenge, a movie about surprisingly very little revenge. Next week, we'll be watching The Witch from the 2015. What? Oh, I'm sorry. The Vivitch. The Vivitch. <laughs> and remember, always scream responsibly. Ah! Bye! Thank you for listening to Drinking and Screaming. Drinking and Screaming is produced and edited by Charlene Bear. Our sound engineer and local designer is Kelly Wright. And it's hosted by, yep, you guessed it, Kelly Wright and Charlene Bear. For bonus episodes, Patreon poll voting privileges, and exclusive rewards, become a patron at patreon.com slash drinkandscream. Want a shout out? Review us on Apple Podcasts and we'll read your review live on the show. For more information, check out our website, drinkingandscreaming.com.